There we go. Thanks, Father. They, uh, we had a good lesson last week on uh, the role of tax collectors in the Roman Empire at that time. They essentially were uh, subcontractors. Uh, you know about contractors. We've got them all over Oak Ridge, but uh, you, how do you get your contract? You, you make a bid. And so sort of we have, a say, a district. Last week it was Jericho. So as chief tax collector, you would make a bid for some, some sort of little Roman district of Jericho, and you would bid, you know, I can collect 100,000 sesterces, whatever those are. Uh, that's from those Bible things. And, uh, you know, I can collect that. <clears throat> and so how'd you make a living? By collecting more than that. You know, and so it was a, it was a game. And, uh, and if you couldn't, you know, you could use soldiers and stuff to help you collect your taxes. And, you know, and considering the fact that the subcontractors were Jews collecting Roman tax money out of their brothers and sisters uh, and extorting them so they could make a profit. And if you happen to be a rich tax collector, like last week was, was, uh, was Zacchaeus, then you know he's rich because he's been taking way more than it's costing him in his bid to the Romans. You know, so um, he's using the Romans to get rich. So you can see why they were as deeply hated as they were. They were, by definition, cheats and traitors. That, that, I don't know about you, but cheating and being a traitor ranks pretty high on the list of the nefarious. And then on the other hand, today we have the example of the Pharisee, who is in Jewish piety of the time, an example of righteousness. He, to the best of his ability, he keeps every requirement of the law and does so really demonstrably. He not only keeps it, he can be seen to keep it. He's a walking example to everybody around. And don't he know it? Uh, anyway, so we have Jesus picks sort of these two extreme examples, the example of the righteous man and the example of the despised man. And he puts them uh, in the temple praying. One says, I'm really glad, they, oh Lord, that I'm not like him. Uh, this guy over here, I do all these good things. I keep the laws. I pay my taxes. I look to him. <laughs> Lord, and, you know, I pay my tithes and all these things. You know, and the other guy won't. It, you, you, first, the question is, what on earth got a tax collector to the temple? Right? I mean, what had he done that week that he felt so bad about that he needed to go pray? We don't know. He might have done a little more than extort. Uh, you know, and so there, it's there, but he's there. And so this is an extreme example, and perhaps one they have seen. And this tax collector won't even lift up his eyes to pray, but simply smites his breast and says, Oh, Lord, be merciful to me. A sinner, and Jesus says, "That's the one who goes home justified, not the righteous guy, but this guy." Well, we could talk about this in terms of, you know, what kind of person are you? Are you like the publican, or are you like the Pharisee? But I think those kinds of things uh, always miss the point. The dividing line between good and evil uh, always runs down the middle of each human heart, uh, not between human beings. But with, this is. I think was the thought of Seltzer Nietzsche. It, it's the dividing line runs down the middle of every human heart, uh, which is to say, 
you've got a publican and a Pharisee in you. We're both. So that's kind of where I want to talk about today. Actually, what I want to talk about some is how to save a Pharisee. How to save a Pharisee. Because you got one, and I got one. Your publican is doing fine. Okay? I, I will touch on him, but it's your Pharisee I'm interested in this morning. My training as a Pharisee started off early in life. Um, not by a certain kind of righteousness, but I was thinking about this. When I was a little boy, four, five years old, my mom decided that I was smart and that I needed to be rightly trained. And so she sent me from my blue-collar suburbs to, to a fancy private school downtown for kindergarten and first grade because she thought they taught how to read better there, and she wanted me to get that. My older brother, the public schools were good enough for him. Yeah. <laughs> Years later, my older brother said to me, you know, Steve, they always loved you best. And I told him, yes, and you always loved me best, and that's why I'm in therapy. But, um, and that's not actually a joke. But anyhow, she sends me off to this school. I had to catch a, a, the, the city bus. I was actually pretty excited about it. It cost a dime to ride the city bus back then. It was a big deal. You four and a half years old, getting on a city bus, riding downtown, go to this, it's a Lutheran private school. And I don't know why Lutherans had nuns, but, or what they were, they were called sister, and they dressed like penguins, and you know, and they were not mean, but it still was kind of interesting. I never did get a good explanation about all of that. What were these Lutheran nun-like things doing, running a school? But I think about it, I do not remember the name of my kindergarten teacher. I do not remember the name of anyone in my class. I do remember the name of my first grade teacher because she had also been my father's first grade teacher and so she was talked about. But I don't remember the name of a single student I was in class with. Okay, That's my blocked out sort of thing. What is also interesting, however, is that I can remember the first single and only reading word I missed that year. We were had a reading group, and I came across the word cupboard. It's not spelled C-U-B-B-E-R-D, like it ought to be. Um, if we weren't, you know, you know, odd in English, it's spelled cupboard, which is what I said, cupboard. Teacher corrected me and said, no, it's cupboard. First off, I'd never heard of a cupboard. We had cabinets. Uh, we didn't have cupboards. Those were like Yankee things. But uh, so... How was I supposed to read that word? Cupboard. And here I am at 67 years old. And that is my memory from first grade. That's it. One word, the one I missed. That's how you get to be a Pharisee. I can remember, I saw this question posted on Facebook. It said, can you remember the word you missed in the spelling bee? Yes, I can was the word restaurant. I couldn't picture it. They didn't tell me we were being tested on French that day. You know? And restaurant. I mean, we never went to those places. You know? It's like McDonald's. Anyway, uh, I remember that. Um, I don't remember all the words I got right. I only remember the word I got wrong. How many of you remember the word you got wrong? Spelling bee? Okay, so a few of us, 
a few of us, very few, the rest of you are behind on your Pharisee training, uh, but you probably have some stories that you can do for yourself. The inner Pharisee, interestingly, he may talk a good game. I tithe, I keep the rules, but the inner Pharisee is also deeply aware of what he's done wrong. Oftentimes, stupid little things. I mean, what kind of a thing do you do to remember a reading word? Cupboard. <laughs> For that many years, what is, what is that? What is that? How is that filed in there? It's filed in a place of embarrassment and shame, and it stings. And actually, we train our Pharisee by doing everything we can not to be that guy. Not to be the one who can't read the word. Um, not to be the one. Uh, you remember in class, the few in the class, and you might have been one of the few who struggled with reading. And the teacher calls on you to read out loud and you're struggling. And there's tittering in the classroom. Oh, the teacher fusses at them. But we're collectively helping each other train our inner Pharisees. We become concerned with performance. And of course, we have a culture uh, that, you know, you make good grades, you get to better college, you get to better college, you get to better jobs, you get to better jobs, you get to better pay, and on and on and on. And of course, it's also true that for most of us, we're not that guy. We're not that guy. Um, you, you didn't get the better grades, you didn't get the better job, you don't have the better money, and we live in a culture that says, and it's your fault. And your inner Pharisee cringes, and we make up for it in places where we can, the places where we imagine that we are in control, and we can get hyper about it. If you find yourself, for example, um, you know, going to confession and saying, I really have a problem judging people. I always know when I hear that, that the one you judge the most is yourself. It's an inner critic living there. The inner Pharisee is a critic, and he criticizes the self more than anyone. You know? And he, what the difficulty is that he can't be the publican is because he can't stand to feel like that. He can't bear that shame. He can't be that guy. And so Jesus, interestingly, in the course of his ministry, he's, he's, saving, he's saving publicans left and right. He's saving prostitutes left and right. You know, he's, those people are, are coming easily into the kingdom of God. Why? Because all their lives, for all kinds of reasons, they've been taught to bear the shame. They know, and they come to him without any boasting, with just hope for mercy, knowing that they're only going to get there by mercy. And others whose inner critic has been trained. I mean, the inner critics got together one day and said, let's invent something called a Pharisee. And we can have like an inner critic club, but we'll call it Pharisee because it'll sound better. You know, and we won't say to society, we're neurotic Jews. Okay? Yeah. 
we'll just call it Pharisee and we'll be the righteous. You know, you know, I think to myself, I graduated first in my class in college. I also spent a week in a mental hospital in college. It'll make you crazy. It'll make you crazy. This inner life. And so Jesus isn't trying to compare and say publicans are better than Pharisees. He's trying to say to us, I know a way out. I know a way out. Uh, the, the life of the inner critic is a lie. It's not the truth. It's not who you really are. You know, the Pharisee, you know, maybe he accidentally didn't tie the little bit of a something or other, and he hasn't forgotten it yet. It eats him up. He overlooked something. He missed a point, you know, something that way. We torture ourselves with these things. And this torture stands between us and God. We cannot stand naked before God. We've got to find a fig leaf. We've got to cover it. We've got to hide it. We've got to do something like that. I see this, I mean, for instance, in, in the uh, public display of orthodoxy out in the blogosphere and Facebookosphere, uh, you know, and people who are kind of, as they call them, hyperdocs, and you kind of brag about that. And I think, oh, get over it. Get over it. Who do you think you are? You know, who do you think we are? I, you'll, you'll see the memes and say orthodox, the Marines of Christianity. I'm thinking, dude, you're in the Air Force. You know, I mean, sorry. <laughs> you, sorry. If you're, if you're former Air Force, I apologize. <laughs> but... How do you save a Pharisee? By helping him, by helping him become a publican. By helping him become a publican. Not sell out his people, not be a traitor, not be those things, but to, as uh, Father Zacharias of Essex said about confession, he said, teach them to bear a little shame. You may not be able to do the whole schmear, you may not be able to do the whole schmear. What you do is a little at a time. When my first, my first confession was as an Episcopalian, it was with a monk. And I went to him and I made my confession. The first thing I brought up, I, you know, I, I thought I would leave the misspelling word to third. But uh, first thing I brought up was accidentally, I accidentally dropped a little kitty cat when I was eight years old. It belonged to a cousin. She handed it to me. The cat peed on me, and I dropped it, and it broke its neck. You know? Truth was, wasn't my fault. Not really, it's just a thing that happens. And yet, I was in my 20s, and the first thing you want to carry to confession is this accident of a childhood. We carry strange, broken wounds in us. And these things, they form and shape us into Pharisees who can't say these things, you know, uh, out loud and can't bring them into the presence of God. The publican has somehow or another gotten past that and simply says before God, have mercy on me. Scripture says that God resists the proud but gives more grace to the humble. And it's not because God doesn't like the proud. He resists the proud in order to heal them. 
And how does he resist the proud? By letting them run into brick walls and run into brick walls and run into brick walls until finally they think there has got to be a better way. You know, and to join the publican who's going to crawl under the wall, dead a hole, go with him, you know, go with him. And think to yourself, if I can bear that, if I can bear that, then perhaps I can be saved. Great Lent is an opportunity for us to take the Pharisee, the inner critic, and take him to prayers with the publican and work at teaching him how to pray. You know, I, I sometimes tell people that the best thing you can do in Lent is fail. The worst thing you can do in Lent is get it right. I, I once knew a guy who was so good at getting it right. Uh, he was a parishioner here, but he's not anymore. But he was so good at getting it right, he was driving his wife crazy. And I thought, this is not fair. You have a personality disorder that likes to suffer. Uh, or something like that. You just fast better than anybody else or whatever that way. And so you had to kind of reverse things and give him things that he would fail at. Because without failure, who can be saved? St. Paul says we are saved by our weakness. I will boast in my weakness, he says, not in my strength. We are saved by our weakness, by the grace of God. And so as we come into Lent, if it's hard, good. If you fail, good. If the Pharisee messes up some, good. Let him pray like a publican. Father, I just totally blew the fast this week. I don't know, I just couldn't get my mind right. and I, just, I had a hamburger, you know. Okay, okay. We can, good, good. Now we can begin to pray. Now we can begin to pray. God resists the proud, but he gives more grace to the humble, to the humble. God give us the grace to be sick enough to get well. That's the logic of the New Testament and the teaching in St. Paul. We don't purposely ever sin. You have enough accidental to save you. Don't have to work at it, okay? God is with you, giving grace to the humble. God, save us, even our Pharisee. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.